Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 18. Uh, Luke chapter 18, and we'll read again verses 9 and 10. Where we read, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Alistair Begg has a story about a young preacher who was delivering his first sermon. He had studied the text and he was confident that he had studied well, he had prepared well, and that his delivery was going to be better than any other preacher whom he had ever had the misfortune of hearing. The day for preaching that sermon arrived and he ascended the pulpit steps looking out for those who he believed had come to hear him. He was practically bursting with pride. When the time for preaching the sermon came, he opened his Bible and he discovered to his horror that he couldn't remember any of his sermon. He stuttered, he stumbled, and after a few minutes, he descended the pulpit steps with his head bowed. An old elder remarked, as elders are tend to do, If he had gone up the way he went down, he would have gone down the way he went up. Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series on stories that Jesus told. And we're looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We're going to divide the passage under two headings. We're going to look at the parable and then the prayers. First, the parable, that's in verses 9 and 10, where Jesus tells a parable about two men who went to pray. Luke provides us with a setting in verse 9. Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem and the cross. He has just told his disciples a story about a widow who kept on asking a judge to give her justice until he relented. And Jesus had told that story to encourage his disciples, encourage his followers to keep on praying and not to not give up. And after telling his story, Jesus becomes aware of a disappointing attitude that is creeping into the heads, creeping into the hearts of some of those who are listening to him. Luke tells us that they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. They were convinced that their good works had earned them a right standing with God, had merited them a right standing with God. And the symptom of that self-righteous spirit is that they were treating others with contempt. They were looking down on them. They were literally despising them. And so Jesus decides to remedy this by telling another story. We move from the setting to the story in verse 10. Jesus speaks about two men who went up to the temple to pray. There were two daily services in the Jerusalem temple, one at 9am, the other at 3pm. And these two men find themselves attending one of those services. Jesus highlights that these two men had a number of things in common. They were both men. They both belonged to the same church. They both attended the same service. They both stood apart from the rest of the congregation. And they both engaged in prayer to the same God. But despite this, there was a crucial difference. One of the men was a Pharisee. He's a nationalist. A man who is longing for God to send his promised Messiah, send the one who would usher in the kingdom of God and drive out the Romans. 
This man is a social and religious conservative, a man who gave strict adherence to the law of God. Dale Ralph Davis claims that the Pharisee would be regarded as the embodiment of piety and spiritual earnestness. This man is really a cut above the rest when it comes to religious behaviour. The other man is a tax collector. He's employed by the Romans and gains his income through demanding higher taxes from his own people. He's a despised character. He would be viewed as a traitor in a turncoat by many. He would be mentioned in the same breath as sinners and prostitutes. And the question that Jesus is presenting as he speaks about these two men is which of them is righteous? Which of them is in a right standing with God? Which of them is going to go to heaven when he dies? Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the attitude that raises Jesus' concern. The attitude that raises Jesus' concern. That's what we see in Luke 18. Jesus sees people who are trusting in themselves and believe themselves to be righteous. And that attitude results in them treating others with contempt. Treating those whom they believe don't measure up to their standards as being below them. It's an attitude that concerns Jesus. And that's important for us to reflect on. I remember a a long-standing member in another congregation, not our own, so don't go looking around the building thinking, I wonder is it him, I wonder is it her. I remember a long-standing member in another congregation complaining to me one day about the riffraff who were attending their services. That was the exact word that he used, riffraff. I remember another family from that same congregation telling me that they had stopped going to that church because they felt judged by some of its members. Maybe they had heard that word riffraff being used. Here was a church where the gospel was being preached week by week, and at the same time, some of the members of that church had lost all sight of Jesus and had lost their awareness of their need for him. Instead, they believed themselves to be good people, moral people, religious people, maybe a cut above others. And that attitude was causing them to look down on other people, look down on those who weren't measuring up to their standards, looking down on those who they thought weren't as religious as they were, weren't as moral as they were. The attitude that raised Jesus' concern 2,000 years ago in Palestine was very prevalent 2,000 years later in Scotland. So let me ask you this morning, friends, not asking you as a group, I'm asking every one of you as individuals, how's your attitude toward those who are in our church and those who are outside our church? How's your attitude toward the person who's sitting beside you, sitting behind you, is sitting in front of you? How's your attitude toward the person maybe in our congregation who's not coming out to services right now? How's your attitude toward the person who's never darkened the doors of a church in this town before? Do you have an attitude that indicates that you have renounced all self-righteousness? Or do you have an attitude that would possibly give Jesus cause 
for concern. How's your attitude? So we move then from the, the parable to the prayers, verses 11 down to 14, where Jesus now draws attention to the prayers of the two men who went to pray. We can start by noting the context of the prayers. These men have gone up to the temple to pray, and that's significant. Every afternoon, the priest would select a lamb to be sacrificed. It would be without blemish, without any mark, and it would then be washed. And after it was selected, and after it was washed, its throat would then be cut, and the blood sprinkled on the altar. The rest of the animal would be burnt as an offering to God. And after that sacrifice those who had gathered in the temple would be able to call on the Lord in prayer. They would be able to engage in their public and their private worship. They had been reminded that they couldn't approach God without the offering of a sacrifice. They had been reminded that they couldn't call on the name of the Lord without an awareness of their own guilt and his amazing grace. And having noted the context of the prayers, we can hear the content of the prayers in verses 11 to 13. We have the prayer of the Pharisee, verses 11 and 12. He stands by himself. He chooses a prominent position. You know, if he were here today, he wouldn't be sitting in the front row, wouldn't be sitting in the back row. He would be standing right up here, right beside me, where everyone can see him, where everyone can hear him. And as he prays, he speaks about his moral behavior. He claims that he's not like other men. He says that he's not an extortioner, not unjust, not an adulterer. And then he looks across the room and he says, And I am not like this Pharisee, this tax collector, sorry. His words are dripping with contempt. He's looking at the other people who are worshiping and he says, God, I am not like them. He is confident in his impeccable moral behaviour. And as he prays, he also speaks about his religious behaviour. He claims that he fasts twice a week. And not only does he fast twice a week, he says that he gives a tenth of all that he gets, a tenth of his income to God's work, God's cause, God's church. So he is confident not just in his impeccable moral behaviour, but confident in his impeccable religious behaviour. And as he prays, he thanks God that he's the way that he is. His prayer is framed as one of thanksgiving and praise to God. He's found thanking God and thanking God for helping him to live this impeccable exemplary life. He says, thank you, God, for making me not like an unjust person, not like an extortioner, not like an adulterer. Thank you that you have enabled me not to live like that tax collector across the room. He's looking at all those other people in the temple and he's whispering to himself, there but for the grace of God go I. This Pharisee is an awesome man. This Pharisee gives off an aura of holiness. You know, we might imagine him transferring his membership to a Kirk session. And they find out that he's a man who can pray in public. Wonderful. And they find out that he's a man who has no skeletons in his closet. Even better. And they find out that he's a man who's very generous, very good to the church. Brilliant. No doubt they'd be left saying... What a great guy this man is. What an asset this man will be to our church. Aren't we privileged? Aren't we blessed? Aren't we lucky to have him 
coming among us. But there's one major problem. I wonder, did you notice it? This man's whole focus, even in prayer, is on himself. In two short sentences, he manages to use the personal pronoun I five times. There is a smugness in this man, a superiority in this man, a a self-righteousness in this man. Charles Spurgeon says that this man thought that he was too good to be saved. And then we have the prayer of the tax collector. Look at verse 13. He stands far off, doesn't want the Pharisee to see him, doesn't want anyone else in the congregation to see him. You know, if if he were here today, he wouldn't be sitting at the front, he wouldn't be sitting at the back, he would probably be sitting behind the doors. Doesn't want anyone to know that he's in the building. Furthermore, he's unable to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he can only beat on his breast and an expression of intense sorrow. And as he prays, he calls himself a sinner. In fact, he doesn't call himself a sinner. He literally says in the Greek, the sinner. He sees himself as being in a unique class, a unique category of sinners. He's saying here, I am the worst of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I am the, I am the greatest of sinners. There's, there's no one quite as bad as me. And as he prays, he prays that God would be merciful to him. Now that word mercy comes from the sacrificial system that this man has just witnessed. It's a word that speaks about a sacrifice that would cover over a person's sin. And not just cover over their sin, but would remove God's wrath from them. This man is crying out, oh God, would you please cover my sin, cover my guilt, cover my shame. And don't just cover my sin, but please remove your wrath from me. Please remove your judgment from me. Please remove your condemnation from me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, having heard the content of the prayers, we see the conclusion to the parable in verse 14. Jesus starts by providing the punchline. Look at the beginning of verse 14. He's just presented this parable to a group of people who were trusting in their own righteousness And we're treating others with contempt. And he has spoken to them about two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the question is, which of these two men is righteous? Which of these two men is in a right standing with God? Which of these two men will go to heaven when he dies? Now, if you had never heard the parable before, you'd be left saying, well, it's got to be the Pharisee. He's such a moral man. He's such a religious man. And Jesus now says, look at verse 14, I tell you, which is an expression that he deserves for his most important, most significant sayings, most profound sayings. He says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, this one who cried out to God for mercy, this man went down to his house justified. That word justified is a legal term. It means to be pronounced righteous, pronounced in a right standing with God in the heavenly courtroom. This man has been acquitted of every charge that ever stood against him. This man has been spared from any punishment that awaited him. 
This man has been declared as being acceptable before God and not just acceptable before God, but acceptable by God. But Jesus goes even further. As he says, this man went down to his house justified. Look at verse 14. What does it say? Rather than the other. What shocking words. This moral and religious Pharisee had gone up to the temple to pray. And as he did so, he stood condemned before God. And this man is going to leave the temple and he's going to go back home and he's going to get on with all his religious duties, all his moral duties. He's going to keep on living a cut above the rest and he's going to remain condemned before God. And Jesus moves from the punchline to the principle in verse 14. He closes by saying, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is saying here that a person will not be justified. They will not be declared to be in a right standing with God in the court of heaven when they are trusting in their own morality, their own religious behavior. Jesus is saying that a person will only be justified. They will only be declared to be in a right standing with God in the court of heaven once they have abandoned, once they have renounced all their moral behavior, all their religious behavior, all their self-righteousness and thrown themselves wholly, solely, only on the mercy of God. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the appeal that rouses Jesus' commendation. We've seen the attitude that raises his concern. This is now the appeal that rouses his commendation. That's what we see here in Luke 18. Jesus speaks about the admission that this tax collector made. He admitted that he was a sinner. Not just a sinner, but the sinner. He speaks about the appeal that this man made. God, be merciful to me. Please cover over my sin. Cover my guilt. Cover my shame. Remove your wrath, your anger, your judgment, your condemnation from me. And he speaks about the acquittal that this tax collector received. He went to his house justified, went to his house freed from all condemnation, went to his house forgiven and accepted and acquitted by God. This is the appeal that Jesus commends. And that's important for us to reflect on. You see, we've already highlighted the belief in Jesus' day that sins could be removed, sins could be covered over, and God's wrath removed through the offering of a sacrifice. And the New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus' death on the cross in Jerusalem, less than two weeks after he told this parable, was the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for sin. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he announces that God put Jesus forward to be a sacrifice that would cover over sin and remove his condemnation. In 1 John chapter 4, John announces that God loved the world and he loved his, the world that he sent his son to be the sacrifice that would 
cover over sin and remove his condemnation. Jesus, friends, is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The final sacrifice for sin. The only one in whom the mercy of God is found. And this brings us then to the most important question you will ever have to address. The most pivotal question that you will ever have to address. If you were to be asked the question today, why should God let you into heaven? What is your confidence for being in a right standing with God? What assurance do you have for being accepted by God? How would you answer? Now I know I've asked that question of you sometimes. I know I've asked that question of some people who have been wanting to profess faith in this congregation. And I've said to them, well... If you were to be asked the question, why should God let you into heaven? What basis do you have for being in a right standing with God? How would you answer? I've asked that question of others in this congregation. I'm now asking it of every single person in this congregation. How would you answer? Would you start talking like the Pharisee? Prattling on about your moral behaviour, your religious behaviour? Would you start saying things like, well, while I do my best... I'm a pretty good person in comparison to others. Uh, and, and, and I always attend church unless the weather's really bad or my health doesn't permit. Or would you say, I have no confidence apart from the mercy of God that is found in Jesus, the only sacrifice for sin? Would you be left saying, my only assurance is that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Who removes the wrath of God and covers over all my sin, all my guilt, all my shame. Would you be left saying, I have no other boast, I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Would you be left saying like John Newton who once wrote in his diary, I have sinned, yes, but Christ has died. Friends, this is how radical the gospel is. This is how radical the good news concerning Jesus is. The gospel says, now please don't be offended, but the gospel says that a person can be moral, a person can be religious, a person can be an exemplary citizen, and they can still go to hell. Meanwhile, a person can be weighed down with their baggage, weighed down with their background, And have nothing but a prayer, nothing but a plea. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and they will go to heaven. This is how the gospel runs counter to every other religion, every other belief system. The gospel says you do not earn God's favour. You do not deserve God's favour. You do not merit God's favour. The gospel says that the favour of God, the mercy of God, comes to a person as a free, undeserved gift for the asking. I've often quoted these words from U2's Bono, but I'll share them again. He said in an interview, I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross. Because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religious behaviour. 
He went on to say the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That is the point. It should keep us humbled. It is not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. That's some statement. And it's not made by a person who's been to university with 10 theological degrees. It's made from a singer in a contemporary rock band. So let me ask you this morning, friends. Have you appealed to God for the mercy that is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone? You might be here today and you're not a Christian. Haven't been to church for a while, maybe haven't been to church at all. And my encouragement to you today, friend, is to humble yourself and cry out for the very first time, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all. Or you might be here and you are a Christian. And my encouragement to you today, friend, is to remember that you, you never move on from this prayer. You never move on from this appeal. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it might well be, and I'm sure James MacDonald will agree with me on this, it might well be that as you go on in the Christian life, you will find yourself more and more inclined to say, not God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but rather, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't feel any better than anyone else. See, friends, we never move on, never move on from the gospel and our resting on the mercy of God that is found in Christ.